welcome to another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm Marva Hinton. Our guest today is Jennifer Sun. Her critically acclaimed novel, Mayumi and the Sea of Happiness, was published last year. It's her debut novel, but her third book. She's written two award-winning poetry collections. You can find out how to win a free signed copy of Mayumi and the Sea of Happiness on our website, readmorepodcast.com. And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Mayumi and the Sea of Happiness is about a librarian in her early 40s who has an affair with a 17-year-old high school senior she meets at the library. It takes place on an island off the coast of Massachusetts, and the idea of being isolated because of your physical location and your mental state is explored in depth here. The two share a love of books, and Mayumi also develops an unusual friendship with the teen's mother. Now, some listeners may hear this subject matter and be a little bit wary of the title, but you handle it so beautifully. This is a sensual work that also makes you think very deeply about the dynamics of such a relationship. How did you achieve that balance in writing a novel that deals with sexuality through the course of a taboo relationship without it becoming lurid? I think the truest answer to that question is, I don't know. But if I had to try to explain it, I would say that I wrote always looking through the lens of what interested me and what interests me is human relationship, memory, the passage of time. (laughs) If anything, what interests me are really mundane things that tend not to be very lurid at all. So maybe that was a good match between the mundane place that I'm coming from matched with a potentially lurid subject matter. Well, while this novel is by no means a bodice ripper, I mean, there are still some pretty intense scenes between uh, Mayumi and the young man. Was it difficult for you to write that material? No. Well, I guess what I was thinking is, was there any concern about like how your readers would take it and not just anonymous readers like me, people you don't know at all, but like your family and your friends? Okay, yes. I almost forgot when, when I was writing the book, I, I was, I was really afraid of that. But I've almost forgotten about that. But it, it's funny. No, no one really ended up reacting the way that I thought. And I also had this habit of going to work at the library and talking about the book while I was writing it. So I would actually ask librarians, if the character were going to sleep with a 17-year-old, would you hold it against her? So I kept sort of checking in with them step by step. And their answers really changed the course of the book and gave me so much permission because I I soon learned that so many more townspeople than I'd ever imagined were committing transgressions on a daily basis and that really on any given day this town was just absorbing innumerable secrets. So the, com- the sense of community there, um, people were just really encouraging and supportive even before the book came out, I 
because I couldn't stop talking about it. Um, so that made it easier. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the fact that you were working in a library while you wrote this. And how did your work as a librarian influence this? Because reading the book, it almost feels like you're getting a peek into the secret life of librarians. Well, it could be, I suppose, a secret, a peek into someone's secret life. Um, I, I've always been really interested in libraries as a space. There's something about a library that is at once really mundane, but it's so ripe for adventure, whether that's literally or just on the shelves. There are just so many different worlds available to you. And it's a little bit like a bookstore too, just when you walk in the door, you can feel a sense of possibility. And I always love that sense about a library. And I do think that librarians, even when they're really busy, have interior lives and it's quiet and lends itself to rumination. So there's plenty to think about. Well, as I was reading the book and really enjoying it, I still couldn't help but feel like if the roles were reversed in this book, I'd have a very different feeling about it. Um, There would be a sense of creepiness, you know, if uh, Mayumi were a man. Is that something that also struck you as you were working on it? I do think I was playfully responding to to books of the past where the man is older and there's the the girlish nymph um, who's being preyed upon. But I, but I, it did feel different to me. She, she feels he's actually about her size, if not bigger, and she feels unsafe at times. Um, I, I like to think that the right writer could do the reverse beautifully. Well, I feel like Mayumi is such an interesting character. And as a reader, she just really intrigued me because, you know, she's a wife and she's a mother to a four-year-old girl and just very respectable in the community. You know, I guess what you would imagine a librarian to be. But there's also so much going on underneath there that just the general public doesn't see. Um, She's this great thinker. She's constantly in her head, you know, and she's a voracious reader who is lonely also and just very desperate for some sort of excitement or, or passion in her life. How was it for you living in her head when you were creating this character? It's funny because if you had asked me this question while I was writing the book, I would have told you that I felt like I was her. But now that sounds crazy to me. Now it feels like a kind of fever dream that I had that I can barely remember. In fact, I was a little nervous about talking about it because it seems so far away now. Um, But I just, you've heard this so many times probably from other writers, but I just started hearing this voice. And I became her while I was writing the book. I I mean, as a writer. (laughs) I have to talk to you about your sentences. I mean, as I said already, I really love the book, but there were so many sentences that stood out to me as just being phenomenal. And they were just written so beautifully. I mean, for example, there was one, his voice brought to mind a chain being dragged through a gravel pit on a dark night. And as I was reading, I thought, 
you as a writer, I felt like I knew that you were definitely a poet. Now, was it easy for you to transition from writing poetry to prose? It's funny. I, On paper, I do look like someone who transitioned from poetry to prose because this is my first novel that's been published. But I've actually been writing them in tandem for a long time. I wrote this book to escape my first book, which I still haven't finished. Um, so I, I've been writing both for a long time. I think that because I was a poet first, even though it was just a few years of that by itself, the one thing that can be hard writing a novel is the, f the fixation that I have with a sentence and this feeling that I'm building the book sentence by sentence, which if you do the math is kind of crazy. So that's a challenge, but it's also that's what's pleasurable to me. So that's the way I do it. I, I always have in my mind this image of someone at a typewriter just, you know, typing a million miles an hour, and that's just not me. Well, it definitely came through. I could tell you paid very close attention to the sentences. Another theme in this book is being on an island. I mean, we touched on that a little bit briefly at the beginning. Um, I know you lived on Martha's Vineyard for many years. What did that experience teach you about island life and how it differs from people who live on the mainland? There's a part in the book that mentions what it's like when there's a storm. And Miami says something to the effect of, it's like we're all on this ship together on this perilous but temporary journey. Um, and really in all weather, living on a small island is sort of like that. There's this sense that you have to work to preserve the peace because there's nowhere else to go. And if the boat rocks, then we're all gonna feel it. And if the boat capsizes, then we all go down. So I do think people, people, you could commit some kind of crime or transgression one day, and then people just put it in a cabinet and file it away. And it, it just falls to the back of the cabinet. Um, so it, you would think that you would walk around thinking, oh, everyone knows everything about me, but it's not like that at all. There's somehow more psychic space between people. Um, it's very forgiving, I think. I feel like this is also a real book lover's book because you refer to so many books throughout the novel and people get to, you know, if they've read those books, they kind of get to remember and go back a little bit and see them through um, Mayumi's eyes as well as the young man's. And you mentioned Lolita several times and that kind of comes to mind when you're reading the book anyway because of the subject matter. I mean, there are times when Mayumi's co-workers even tease her by referring to that novel when they think she has what they call a, a patron crush. How do you see the two being related? I, I love that book. Um, and I can see all sorts of reasons why people would be critical of the book or of the storyline, although I think Nabokov would be just as critical as the people of his character. Um, 
And so that that book was definitely never far from my mind as I was going. So even though I love, I, I love the book, I was also responding to it, and um, just playing with the reversal. Well, the novel also feels like it's about mothering. I mean, we see so much with Mayumi and her relationship with her daughter, Maria, and the young man with his relationship with his mom, Violet. Uh, There are even times when Mayumi compares him to her child. And those were some times when, as a reader, I have to admit, I felt a little bit uncomfortable. how did you want the reader to process that? I'm not sure. I mean, I know that that was something she felt uncomfortable with. Um, I don't necessarily want to prescribe a reaction for the reader, but that was something that she couldn't ignore. I mean, she has her, her own moral crisis sort of throughout, but I think those moments when she thinks of her own child and thinks of him are, are some of the most difficult for her to turn away from when she's questioning what she's doing. I'd like to talk a little bit about Mayumi's husband, Var. You know, he is throughout the novel, he's there, but he feels so absent and so distant you know, we're constantly in Mayumi's head, so we only see Var through her eyes, but the way she describes him, I mean, there's a, at one point she calls him simply a craftsperson who lives in the apartment, and then, like a favorite dog, he was part of us, and yet excluded from certain of our activities. Did you want the reader to view him, or when you were writing this, did you have sympathy for Var, or... In some ways, I see you could see him as part of the problem, almost you know, the way he seems to ignore um, Mayumi leads her to look elsewhere. I wouldn't go so far as to blame him, but I... I actually did go out of my way to leave small, I don't know if you would call them clues, but I wanted there to be slight indicators that are coming from me, the writer, just to cue the reader into knowing that there's so much of art we don't know. I tried to indicate that, but for the most part, I was I was really interested in in showing everything through her obsessive lens. And so part of his diminished presence was just the way, like you said, it's through her eyes. And so everything just sort of became muted. Everything that wasn't the young man becomes kind of inconsequential to her. And he sadly was one of those things. Well, did you ever consider writing this in third person? 
as I was reading it, there were times when I really wanted to know, you know what Barr was thinking or what Violet was thinking. And I was just wondering as you're going through the writing process, and sometimes writers play around with that, you know, whether a novel is going to be a first person or third person. Is that something that you did at all? No, not with this book. Partly because the book I was trying to escape is written in the third person. And then partly because I just started hearing her voice loud and clear. And so I went with that. Okay, so now I'm going to ask you some questions about your reading life. You know, we always like to do that and read more to find out how uh, writers were influenced and, you know, who influenced them. So, first of all, what is the first book that you ever read that really touched you, uh, really, you know, resonated and is something that stayed with you? All right, I have to preface this by saying that when I was a child, my father was always urging me to read biographies of women, especially women scientists. He's a, he was a scientist. So I read about Madame Curie, Florence Nightingale, Elizabeth Blackwell, and these books were really huge for me, and they just gave me this immense sense of possibility. And once I started moving in the direction, much to his dismay, of being a writer, it was Annie John, and I know that Naomi Jackson said Annie John in her interview too, which is a fabulous one. And so I thought, I should think of something else. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, no, this is it. And when I looked back at when books were published, so I was in high school, and I was really taken with the first person. I loved her voice, and I think I was also intrigued by what a woman-centered book it was here's this girl who's in love with her mother who has a crush on a girl at school um, everything's from her point of view and I just fell in love with her I'd never met this girl in a book before or anywhere probably and and I just fell in love with her so that that was the first book that just really drew me in and I think also gave me this excitement about first person, the intimacy of a stranger just suddenly talking to you in this intimate way. Well, what about um, the three books that are sort of key for you that you would not, uh, you know, want to be without? You know, we always like to ask readers, you know, if you could only read three books for the rest of your life, and you could read those books so as much as you wanted, you could really pour over them, which three books would you choose? This is such a torturous question. I I knew this was coming. The only way I could survive this question was either to make it four or to have, um, well, only fiction and also four. But so The Lover by Marguerite Dura, um, Light Years by James Salter, and I know I already mentioned Jamaica Kincaid, but Lucy and then I really would have to have poetry. So I just, if I had to choose, I would either choose some kind of anthology. The Echo Anthology of International Poetry is amazing. And Merwin's translations of poets from all over the world is amazing too. So I know I cheated, that's five. Well, since you write both, I guess we'll allow that. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, well, on the flip side of all these books that you love, I want to know about a book maybe that 
you have really struggled with. You know, maybe you didn't finish this book after trying several times, or you finished it, but then you found your reaction was not the same. Like, you know, I'm thinking of something that everybody would know and would be very well regarded, but for you, it just didn't do it. I knew about this question too. And all it really made me think of, and I don't want to sound like a closed-minded person, but I have a really strong instinct. So I, I usually trust whether a book is right for me, whether I'm ready for a certain book. Also, I had a teacher in high school, the first woman of color teacher I ever had. Her name was Michael because her parents had wanted a boy and when they had a girl they said we're gonna name her Mike anyway um, so she early on had to learn how to carve out a space for herself and she read The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison to us the entire book aloud I think she also got in some trouble for it but so she alerted me to this fact too that there are all these other books out there that weren't being pushed on me that weren't on my syllabi um, so between my instinct and her encouragement and her just opening all these doors for me, I really haven't wrung my hands too much about reading anything that I don't feel magnetically drawn to. <laughs> Jennifer, <laughs> that's good. But, and I was so afraid you were going to say it was the bluest eye. <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> Which, you know. There's no judgment here, but that's my favorite book. Uh, <laughs> is there, I mean, is there anything though? Like, me? Just a little. I mean, is there any that you, um, not that you said it didn't bother you that you couldn't get through it, but that mm. you just couldn't, you wanted to read it or everybody said you should read it maybe, but you uh, tried and it was just like, oh no, this, this is not for me. Mm. That is so hard. I feel like I'm just revealing myself as a closed-minded person because I, so many people say, oh, you love this. And sometimes I don't even open the book and I already know it's not for me. I'm trying to think. Mm. I've honestly been trying to think of, of this for the past 48. The one I'm going to say is, because there's just so many white men that I've been urged to read that I've opted not to, but, and I'm going to mention one who's also a poet, because not because I don't think he's worth reading, but um, because there's a sort of another reason why I can't read him, and, and that's Thomas Hardy. So I... People especially have told me to read Tests of the D'Urbervilles, um, but also Jude the Obscure. And there was something oddly about what he was doing that was similar to what I was trying to do, and it made me want to turn away. And it seemed really boring to me. It, but I think it's because it, we were somehow too alike, so it bored me. Well, that makes sense. I mean, you know, sometimes we hear that we don't like other people, even who are too close to us, you know, and, that, that and are not to, 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 to the way we are, our personality. Yeah, it's just like, 
I don't mean to say that, you know, his work is at all similar to mine. I don't mean to claim that we have similar stature in any way, but there's just, it might be temperament, it might be subject matter or style. I don't know what it was, but yeah, approach. Okay. Well, what are you working on now? I am finishing up a manuscript of poetry called Not So Dear Jenny. And it's a book of poems that are written in conversation with letters that my father wrote me. And he wrote to me over a period of 30 years. So I have letters. The first one is, you know, when I was a teenager, early teens. And everything I write sort of has to do with my first novel um, and gets me back to it in some way. But but that's been great, and um, it's been full of surprises, and it's been this strange way of communing with them. This one day, my child was at school. I was at home working on it. She came home. We went out to dinner with her grandmother, and I had to catch myself. I almost said to them, you'll never guess what my dad said this morning. And then I just had to stop and tell myself, he's he's gone um but it really felt like i'd spend the day with him so that has been a really uh amazing experience and what are you reading right now all right i have this great i actually just finished nine island by jane allison and which is just this really funny effervescent super smart book that is set on one of the venusian islands and she is actually coming, the book just came out a few days ago. She is gonna be giving a reading at Books and Books on September 25th at 4 p.m. And she'll read and there's gonna be a reception. But I I loved it. It's, it's a great book about just what it means to live a life. And it's about this woman who stays, it, it's an, they're calling it an autobiographical novel. And the main character's name is Jay author's name is Jane Um, but of course we get to have the mystery of not knowing what the fictional part is and this woman is a writer and she's translating Ovid staying in this glass tower apartment type of place and it's very much just about her solitary existence and you would think that it would be dull but her mind is exciting enough to just make it such a it's just a really appealing read. Can I add that for the listeners who are not in the Miami area, they're going to be live streaming that reading, books and books. So anyone could listen to it, actually. That is so awesome of you to, to like give that other writer a nice plug like that. Jennifer Sun, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find you online? Well, I have a website, jenniferson.weebly.com. And my Twitter handle is Sun Island. Okay, well, again, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to us about your book. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You can find out how to win a free signed copy of Mayumi and the Sea of Happiness on our website, readmorepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton, reminding you to read more.